I'm Laura Engel, and this is episode three of Grim Tide. In December of 2010, police looking for Shannon Gilbert instead found the bodies of four other women near Gilgo Beach here on Long Island. So when they resumed in March, searchers were on the hunt, not just for Shannon, but for clues that pointed to a serial killer. However, their next shocking discovery would upend the mystery once again. We're going to move down the beach now and see if we can see something else. On uh, March 29th of 2011, we find a partial set of human remains, which was a skull hands, and I believe a foot. But where was the rest of the body? Investigators ultimately made a DNA match to remains found eight years before in Manorville, Long Island, 10 miles away. So now I have a partial set of remains linked to another location, tens of miles to the east and north of the uh, Gilgo Beach area. Soon, a positive identification was made. Tom Spoda, Suffolk County District Attorney at the time, announced the findings. Those remains have been identified through DNA as Jessica Taylor. Prior to her disappearance, she was working in the vicinity of 10th Avenue in New York City uh, as a prostitute in Manhattan. The proximity to the other remains strongly suggested a link to the Gilgo Four, but only this body had been dismembered and there was no Craigslist connection. So what did police make of that? It is very clear that whoever killed and dismembered Miss Taylor, leaving her partial remains in Manorville and partially in Gilgo Beach, was very intent on preventing her identity from being discovered, even going to great lengths to try and remove a tattoo from her body. What was also clear was that police needed more help in their search for victims and the hunt for the suspected killer or killers. And that becomes a much more exhaustive endeavor because you needed a lot of resources brought in. Now Chief Cameron was in charge of special patrol and he's uh, coordinating all those efforts. We've never ceased the search. We've continued the search and we've intensified the search. We utilized some, I think, unique search techniques. I reached out to the volunteer fire service and I was able to get four tower ladders. So we put homicide detectives in the bucket of the tower ladder. The fire department would extend it out over the brush and they would be able to look down. They would move the bucket around, search an area. It was a difficult area to search. It was a large amount of land to search. I mean, it really was a needle in the haystack, if you will. And they did find more needles. But that didn't necessarily make it easier to stitch all the clues together. On April 4th, we found three sets of human remains. But this time, only one was a woman. She was discovered near the bodies of a man and a young child, neither of which had been dismembered. We had a toddler, we had an Asian male, and what we at the time were calling Jane Doe number six. The latest discovery surprised investigators. I vividly remember the discovery of both those sets of remains. I have to say it was very troubling to the police officers involved in the search that they had found a toddler because we were primarily the mindset was we were looking for the remains of adults. So not only did the body count double, 
the type of victim was more varied. The bodies were disposed of in different ways. And the time frame of the killings had expanded to 10 years. Could investigators even be sure they were hunting a single serial killer? The myth out there is that a serial killer does the same thing every single time. Paul Holes is a retired cold case investigator from Contra Costa County in California, where he helped bring the Golden State Killer, Joseph D'Angelo, to justice. He's an expert on serial killers. They have fantasies and they want to live out this fantasy and they will tend to do the same types of behaviors in order to live that fantasy. But there are dynamics in every case that influence how the offender actually commits the crime. Um, And sometimes these offenders experiment. That became the working theory in the Long Island killings. It looks like the killer may have evolved because the first four that we found uh, were not dismembered. Uh, That's known. It's not secret, but they evolve over time. Uh, And so it's not unusual with killers to change the way they dispose of bodies. The earlier cases, um, we have a dismemberment going on. Mm -hmm. Well, why is the killer dismembering the bodies? And it's usually pretty obvious. You know, the killer has a large body that he's breaking up into smaller parts, make those body parts easier to transport, can scatter the body parts across a larger area in order to be able to more effectively dispose of the body and prevent it from being found. Uh, In addition, uh, the the transport can secret those body parts in smaller compartments within either his residence or his vehicle to help prevent the accidental discovery of those body parts. That's one theory, but Holes advances another, which addresses the puzzling discovery of the male victim who'd been wearing women's clothing. Why would the killer do something that is so drastically different from what he had done. I believe this Asian male possibly had been solicited by the killer. Mm -hmm. And when the killer discovered this is not what I was expecting, I was expecting a woman. The Asian male is bludgeoned to death. He is an adult body, is not dismembered. So I start to wonder, especially when law enforcement says that the dismemberment has occurred in a particular manner, mm-hmm. is there an aspect to the dismemberment mm-hmm. that the offender is doing to his preferred victim, the adult women, that is something that is part of his fantasy? Right. So this plays into what is he doing with the body parts that are being deposited along Gilgo Beach. Is he revisiting these body parts? He wants to relive his experiences with these victims? One thing Holes is sure of. There's no question. This is somebody that is very familiar with this particular stretch of road. Long Islanders also felt it was someone local. It has to be somebody who's pretty familiar with the area. Is this somebody local that lives along one of these beach communities that happens to know that's a very deserted area at a certain time of night and it would be easy to dump bodies? I was stunned when I took a look at the geography you know, I'm thinking, oh, this is this is a beach that is connected, you know, to the, the primary peninsula of Long Island. Mm-hmm. But it is just this narrow strip of land. Right. 
Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at BrianKilmeadeShow.com. Long and narrow, and with the bodies discovered from Gilgo to Manorville, it was time to start searching the entire Long Island shoreline. I reached out to uh, the Nassau County Police and New York State Police and said that, uh, you know, we're suggesting that we continue to partner with you and and search uh, your area as well. We had to go from Nassau through Suffolk and make sure that we recovered every possible body. So we did that search on the 11th of April. The New York State Police found a bag of bones that contained the arms and legs of a female in their area in Jones Beach. Those bones were DNA linked to a torso that was found in Hempstead Lake Park in Nassau County, which the Nassau County Police Homicide Squad had the case. Uh, That torso was found on June 28th of uh, 1997. It was confirmed through DNA testing that this new victim, referred to as Peaches because of a tattoo of a peach on her body, was in fact the mother of the toddler found on April 4th. We recovered the toddler out here. Uh, I don't know if it's a domestic violence case or or what that actual uh, would possess somebody to, uh, you know, do that with a child. Her bones and some jewelry are found. She was at the extreme west end of the search area and her toddler was at the extreme east end of the search area. The last set of remains was found April 11th and it was linked to a 1996 open case near Fire Island. In the Nassau County area by Tobey, we found a human skull. That human skull was DNA linked to a set of legs that we had found on April 20th of 1996 on Fire Island. To date, the remains of 10 people have been found along Ocean Parkway. Eight women, one man, one female toddler. Five of the eight women have been positively identified and were all working as prostitutes at the time of their murders. The process of identifying remains of this nature is painstaking, time-consuming process. While searchers looked for more bodies and more clues and tried to ID each victim and pin down the manner of death, homicide detectives like John Oliva hunted for the killer. Leads started coming in and uh, some of the leads were completely outrageous. You know, they might have gotten 1,000, 2,000 leads. So I know at that point, I think anywhere from 5 to 10, each detective in a major case were given look into these leads. They would, you know, just pretty, uh, you know, people said my mailman or, you know, things that just had, had nothing to it. One lead, however, caught the attention of investigators. Sarah Carnes, Maureen Brainerd Barnes' friend, received an unnerving call soon after Maureen disappeared. I got a phone call. Two weeks after Maureen went missing, it was blocked. The guy that called me sounded older, very well educated. He said, hi, I saw you're out on Craigslist. I have a question for you. Are you from Connecticut? Yeah. Why? We gave it away, 860 number. Well, yeah, that, and I've seen another girl with the 860 area code. She's short. She's got shoulder-length brown hair. And on her right arm, she has a tattoo written in red of her daughter. Holy shit. That's my friend. 
She's been missing for two weeks. Where is she? He had me convinced, and I said, so can you call me back and blocked? I need your help so I can tell the cops that she's not missing. We found her. So we end this. Oh, yeah, yeah, not a problem, not a problem. Okay, cool, thank you. Never called me back. Sarah was not the only one to receive a call. The 16-year-old sister of Melissa Bartholomew, the victim from Buffalo, New York, had received several horrifying calls from someone using Melissa's cell phone. But even more disturbing, the caller described in detail to Melissa's sister the assault and murder. I understand that you received or your daughter received a number of harassing phone calls from your daughter's cell phone. Yes, she did. He would only talk to the 16-year-old. This person would only talk to her because one time I picked up the phone and as soon as they heard my voice, they hung up. So he was taunting your family? Yes, taunting my daughter. And she was just hysterical every time a call would come in. Yeah, it goes to a certain sadistic type of uh, uh, personality to, you know, I think at the time his sister was 16 or 17. He called another victim's family member and said, you should have seen the look on her face and asked her, are you going to be a whore like your sister? That's an interesting aspect. You know, he's using the term whore. It's very denigrating to the victim. Um, And in many ways, it's... I think, you know, it's, it's, it's almost he's like trying to portray that he has this, this mission that he's trying to accomplish by killing these sex workers. There is an element of, of sadism there. You know, this is somebody who is um, getting a, uh, a joy out of inflicting fear, inflicting pain and suffering to this, this loved one of a victim. It's a continuation of what he did to the victim. It's also an expression of, of his own power. You know, he is he is in control of that situation. They traced the calls, but they said that they only traced him to a, a tower. So they didn't know where the phone calls were coming from, or at least they said that? And the person was smart enough to turn the phone off. It, it certainly seems likely that the person that uh, made those calls could be the killer. Those calls occur, um, and that's what we're stuck with for leads, right? But we do have some forensic leads from that. I will tell you that we're looking for someone who is sophisticated, uh, particularly someone who is uh, cognizant of uh, law enforcement techniques uh, when it comes to uh, phone analysis, uh, and someone who uh, you know, knows how to evade detection. In the meantime, police hadn't yet found Shannon Gilbert, the woman whose disappearance started it all. If her remains were found, they would be the freshest evidence in the search and could provide new clues. If she was thankfully found alive, then who knows what could happen. We're going to find her, and we're going to find out who hurt Shannon. If I was somebody in that community, there's something to her. That's what I'm, I'm thinking. The federal government pitched in with a piece of cutting-edge technology that promised to help local investigators solve the Shannon mystery. The FBI helped us out with some uh, special equipment that would map through the trees, if you will, and identify potential objects uh, that could be a body. 
The FBI offered a uh, high-resolution photo flight over the entire area, which I accepted. They flew over the area and they provided us with high-resolution photography of this entire search area. We flew over the Gilgo area and the uh, Oak Beach area. Um, the results of the, the raw data from that overflight needed to be analyzed. It was brought back to Quantico. The FBI notified me that that analysis had been done. They provided me what they referred to as 90 points of interest. We did search the 90 points of interest. So now I had Suffolk County Police assets ready to go for two more days of searching. So I suggested to Commissioner Dormer, since we had those assets anyway, and we still had not found Shannon Gilbert, why not go back to Oak Beach and spend some more time searching in there? So uh, we did. The Oak Beach marsh area, if I recall, is about three quarters of a mile from west to east and about two tenths of a mile from north to south. The terrain is different than the Gilgo area. Um, in many respects, it's, it's a true marsh. Uh, in, some, in some cases, when there's heavy rain and the water level is high, it can almost appear like a lake. At other times, it can appear like a marsh. We had searched the water because one of our thoughts was she might have gone into the water and drowned. So now we were out there with Marine Bureau and we were doing, throwing dummies off the, the docks in the different areas to around to, to look at the, the floating and the currents and matching the currents. We began on Tuesday, December 6th, searching again the Oak Beach Marsh with uh, more assets than we had before, a lot larger search team than the canine searches that had occurred in probably June, July of 2010. The first day we're in there, Tuesday, John Malia finds a pocketbook, uh, shoes, a pair of pants that we ended up uh, realizing belonged to Shannon Gilbert. And obviously we got a break when we found the pocketbook and the clothes. So now, because we found these personal items from her, there was a much, much higher level of confidence that she had gone into the York Beach Marsh and it really ramped up our, our search efforts. Within the Suffolk County Department of Public Works, there's a uh, subunit called Vector Control. They're responsible for primarily mos mosquito control. I learned that they had a uh, piece of machinery that I thought would be very valuable to assist us in searching because the area was so large and the uh, vegetation in some places was so dense. It was a uh, tracked vehicle, tracked like a tank, that was made out of aluminum that could also turn into a boat. So if you're driving along an area with water and it suddenly uh, uh, was submerged in the water, it would float until you got to the other side and then it would turn back into a track vehicle. On December 13th, which is a strange coincidence because it was a year to the day that John Malia found the uh, second set of three remains, a year to the day, we found a set of human remains on the northwest corner of the Oak Beach Marsh that was ultimately identified as Shannon Gilbert. After a year and a half of painstaking searching and nearly a year to the day after the first of 10 other bodies had been discovered, Shannon Gilbert had finally been found. So who was responsible for these murders? Was it all the work of just one person? Or were there multiple killers? Was Shannon's death connected to the other 10 victims? Or was it an unrelated homicide? And was her death even a murder? The answer was by no means clear. Many different theories will emerge as the case of Shannon Gilbert continues to unfold.
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.